Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier this week, a federal judge confirmed that prisoners are eligible to receive stimulus checks of $1,200. The filing deadline is October 30th, so you'll need to move quickly to file paperwork if you're inside or helping someone who is. PrisonLegalNews.org has a link to the law firm which won the case and to the related paperwork. What follows is a short piece submitted to us by a local reporter looking into a recent attempted suicide at the Monroe County Jail. According to a Facebook thread that included a post from Monroe County Councilmember Jeff McKim, an inmate at the jail in downtown Bloomington named Alan Montgomery attempted to commit suicide yesterday and was subsequently brought to an IU health facility. I reached out to the Monroe County Correctional Center, and when I asked about the attempted suicide, an employee confirmed that an investigation is underway, but they would not confirm what the investigation is actually about. When I asked under what legal basis the jail could withhold that information, the employee said that he did not know. I met with Tina Montgomery, Alan's mother, on her front porch and asked her what she knows about her son's condition. So I don't know nothing about my son. I don't know whether he's alive, whether he's dead. Monroe County Police will not tell me, and neither will IU Health Hospital. And how did you hear about about this whole thing to get started with? Um, a friend of mine was telling me that was in the cell block next to him, that got released yesterday. Gosh, and and what did what did he tell you? Um, he just told me that my son hung himself yesterday morning. And he didn't said he didn't look well. They was trying to revive him. Said he wasn't looking good, and that's all I know. Okay. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, Officer Market got rude with me this morning when I called at the Bloomington Police Department and told me he was not allowed to tell me anything at all. All he could tell me was my son got released. He couldn't tell me whether he was dead, whether he was in the hospital, where he was at. I asked him if I needed to come down and get, collect his belongings, and he told me absolutely not because they got released with my son. And I asked him, I said, where is my son? I can't tell you that because of the new HIPAA law that Trump passed. Now, what was that officer's name? Um, Market is who I talked to this morning. A Monroe County Sheriff. Monroe County Jailer down here at Monroe County Jail. Okay. Corrections Department. The lack of clear information coming from the jail is adding stress for Tina. She's very concerned about the well-being of her son. That's my baby. That is my baby. And they won't tell me nothing. IU Health won't even tell me nothing. Ms. Montgomery, thank you for speaking with me, and I'm sorry about everything that's happened to you. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's very sad to hear Mrs. Montgomery's experience, but if reports of the attempted suicide are true, it would mark a continuation in a problem that some people say has plagued the jail in recent years. I spoke with local activist Mark Haggerty about what he says is a trend of recent suicides at the jail. 
since this sheriff was elected, Brad Swain, we've had the first suicides ever in the Monroe County Jail uh, since the new jail was built many, many years ago. Uh, and we've had three of them, three suicides. And um, I'm not blaming it on the sheriff, but uh, the prosecutor's department and the judges don't want to know about it. Uh, the judges will not allow anyone to come. They won't allow me to come and speak at their board of judges meeting and inquire about this. They canceled the recovery program in the jail. They got rid of it. It was our community-based recovery program, and they placed it, they replaced it with a government program that the government gets to say who's in there. And that program represented a safe place to put uh, younger people, uh, those below 18 sometimes, and mentally ill part maybe uh, that that we worried about having suicide issues. They could go down there in the recovery block, and those good men down there would take care of them and, and kind of nurture them. And, and we never had any of that kind of problem down there. And it was, a, it was a gift to the jail, too, under Sheriff Sharp and Sheriff Kennedy. But like I said, uh, Sheriff Swain has abolished that program. WFHB will continue to cover this developing story in the coming days. For WFHB, I'm Aaron Comforti. Prisoners at the Stateville facility in Illinois report that a guard beat another prisoner to the edge of life earlier this week. The victim is currently in the hospital but is facing charges for staff assault. Other prisoners say they saw a pool of blood in the victim's living unit after he'd been removed to the hospital. We now speak with Ted Smith, Associate Professor of Environmental Medicine at the University of Louisville, who tells us about an ongoing research project that can track COVID-19 in prisons through testing the wastewater. I'm Ted Smith. I'm an Associate Professor of Environmental Medicine at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. And we are engaged in a pilot project with the uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky, looking at the potential use of testing wastewater out of uh, prison facilities to uh, get some early warning of whether there's a, a risk of infection in the facility. When the pandemic started, several countries in Europe uh, in March were able to isolate the SARS-CoV-2 virus in sanitary sewer systems in several cities in Europe. And then in the United States, as the uh, infection rate grew in the United States, um, all major American U.S. cities at their central wastewater treatment plants were also able to find copies of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19. And so uh, um, the work that scientists all over the world are doing right now is, is trying to determine uh, best methods for sampling and testing wastewater to determine uh, whether you can do you know, whether you can take an action that would be useful to protect human health. So the project with the state is a few weeks old. I mean, I think we're on maybe week four right now. And the, that project, you know, is a eight to 12 week, really depending on um, how the, the data looks, uh, project. Um, it is in partnership with a commercial company. So 
there's a commercial company uh, called AECOM that is doing the actual sampling and they're shipping the wastewater samples out to uh, a laboratory at another university. And then the University of Louisville was awarded a contract to do the comparison you know, with clinical test results in these facilities so that we could determine what the match rate is, if you will, between what the prison system is getting, uh, testing staff and inmates versus what they're seeing in tests of the wastewater. And so it, it will be a few more weeks before we'll have good preliminary information, um, but it could be as much as another month or month and a half, you know, I think before we have a, a definitive collection of data. So there are several states in the United States that are doing this kind of work, and I don't have a list of them in front of me, but there are many states that are evaluating this approach to determine whether this can help them figure out when testing or increased testing is warranted inside the facilities or when uh, certain practices inside the facilities uh, should change to protect the health of those that are there. First and foremost, it's important to know that when somebody's infected with COVID-19, we all understand that they shed the virus in sneezing and shouting and coughing. We, we understand that, you know, that's one of the ways that the virus propagates itself. But in, you know, roughly 70% of people who are infected, they also shed this through feces. And so um, it turns out using the same tests that we use to find copies of the virus on a nasal swab when your nose is swabbed, um, we use that test to find copies in water samples that come from, in, in most of these cases, sort of whole campus level effluent. So it's water on its, it's wastewater on its way to a water treatment plant. And as it's leaving the campus, um, there's a, you put a, what's called a composite sampler in the pipe. And that composite sampler every 15 minutes grabs a, a little bit, and for 24 hours it runs, and then you have sort of a whole 20, a whole day of sampling, and uh, you go to the, to a laboratory with um, with that wastewater sample, and then you go looking for the genes that are inside that virus, just as you do with a nasal swab. It's exactly the same test. We've all been very encouraged at the work that's been done in uh, college campuses. So the University of Arizona, you know, has used this method to surveil dormitories um, in their, on their campus, and they were able to go in and successfully identify two asymptomatic students just by using this method. And so, um, you know, we are all encouraged that, you know, this may be another way to help, you know, especially finding asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people, that it's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> and so um, if this method, which, you know, I think is very cost effective, um, you know, can, can help us find people be, that before any other method could find them, that, uh, that potentially is a, is a game changer. At the facilities level, prisons, nursing homes, dormitories, homeless shelters, you know, these are congregate living situations where, you know, there's um, reason to be concerned about, you know, infection that's uh, difficult to manage, right? Just, just because of the nature of the populations and how they're, how they're arranged and how they interact with each other. Um, you know, so these are, these are really 
high opportunity areas of work. And there are people all across the world working at, at that level of detail in those kinds of settings. We're also working in the, as I said, in the neighborhood and community level. And then there's a national program for city surveillance looking at just entire cities <laughs> to try to see if they can track, you know, resurgence of the virus or, or anything that might happen on the big scale. So this method could be applied at at least three different scales of, of application. When people ask the question, you know, or, or, or you know, what, how serious is the effort to protect the welfare, you know, of, of individuals who are in congregate living situations like prisons, you know, I would say, you know, I am very encouraged that this is a useful um, approach, you know, to, to, to deal with that very significant concern. You know, the one, one thing that we've never been able to answer during this pandemic is how often should people be tested? <laughs> and, you know, um, for many of us, you know, that would like to think, well, everybody should be tested every day, but we all understand that it's just infeasible to test everybody every day. And so this is the first time that a, a, an approach has come along where I think we can really increase the protection of human health and welfare, um, you know, without the impossible problem of testing everybody all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. So I, I would hope your listeners see this as a a very positive development that is really fully intended to protect the health and welfare of, of individuals who are in these settings. We'll talk to Ted again later to find out the results of this initial phase of research. Lastly this week, we return to our conversation with Malik Washington, recently released from prison after many years. In last week's episode, he spoke about his own experiences inside, but began talking about the current plight of a close comrade who remains inside, Kevin Rashid Johnson. In our installment this week, he continues to advocate on Rashid's behalf, as well as another Indiana prisoner, Kwame Shakur, and speaks to the importance of supporting prisoners. Rashid was shipped to Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, which is located in Carlisle, Indiana. And this was after um, the attack at Pendleton. When Rashid arrived at Wabash Valley, he was placed in a cell with no property, no medication, no, none of his hypertension medication, and no legal paper, no anything. And what what what's more aggravating is that he was placed in a cell that didn't have any access to the Wi-Fi signal, so we couldn't use his tablet. He had his tablet. He didn't have, I don't believe that he had his phone privileges. However, he was able to, he could text or send an email out to his family. And this was something that, this is a human right, being able to contact your family members and let them know after you've been attacked that, you know, you're okay, you know, and that's not what happened. So we were starting, a lot of us on the outside were hearing about what was going on. And I know I was upset because of the connection that I have with Rashid and the relationship that we've developed. Um, I was very, very upset. And I had called his uh, wife, who's been very busy advocating for her husband and also trying to do good work in the community that she lives in. And we've had problems. I had a little bit of contact with her and I told her I was going to do what I could to amplify the struggle to try to help Rashid. I mean, it would, one thing that we have to remember for those of us who are blessed with the opportunity to survive these slave camps and gulags, and we get out here 
and get out here in the world, it is very, very important for us to continue advocating for those we left behind. It is not just good for the prisoners that we leave behind. It's good for you, for the person, for the prisoner who is, becomes free by you staying connected to the abolition movement, not the reformist movement. We're not reformists. We're not trying to make these cages become more cushy and comfortable. We want an abolition of this cruel and unusual, inhumane form of incarceration that the United States of America has fell in love with. It is important for prisoners who get out to continue to do the work. It will help you transition successfully back into the community. And it also, it's cathartic, it's cathartic, and it's also therapeutic. It'll make you a better person. It helps you, it keeps you away from the drugs and the dope and the craziness out here in the world. I can tell you from my own experience, I am a recovering addict and alcoholic. I, on October 7th, 2020, I will be celebrating 13 years clean and sober. And that is a wonderful feeling. I, I have to share with you that when I got off the plane in San Francisco on September 3rd, I was met by my fiance. She was waiting for me in the parking garage by the elevator and we had a hug. And I had not touched a woman in probably 20 years. And I had a hug and I just wanted to hug her. And this is just a human human thing where human beings need touch. They need to be able to hug their family members. And just that connection, it doesn't have to be sexual. It can just be a human being being able to touch and hug and feel wanted by another human being. This is so very necessary to heal human beings who have been trapped in these slave camps and gulags across the United States for decades, and many are still trapped. So my fiance, who is Nube Brown, who is also working with me at the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper as the managing editor, Nube met me. We had our first hug. Then we rode to the halfway house, Taylor Street Center, which is on 111 Taylor Street. And we went to the halfway house and we were greeted by a number of my comrades who are here in the Bay Area. Oakland Abolition and Solidarity, members of California Prison Focus, members of Fight Toxic Prisons. Dr. Willie Ratcliffe, who is 87 years old, even showed up. Dr. Willie Ratcliffe, 87 years old, shows up to welcome me. Malik Washington, welcome home. And we, I got a hug from everybody. We took a few pictures, but I wanna share something with you. The halfway house is in an area called the Tenderloin. We, Nube and I walked around the corner so that we could go get her car and she could ride around and uh, help me deliver my bags. When she got there, she actually, her and I both witnessed a homeless person sitting out on some cardboard with a crack pipe, brand new crack pipe. I looked at it, I said, hmm. and he sat there and he smoked his crack and that's what he was doing. I mean, you know, it's free, he can do that. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is, he was leaning up against the building of the halfway house. And I was like, wow, it's real close. I'm gonna have to stay grounded. I'm gonna have to take this seriously. So that was just a reminder. Welcome home, Malik. I'm still here. Crack, alcohol, meth, pills, heroin. It's still here. It's not went anywhere. 
but I've changed. And part of that change was not only the help of Kevin Rashid Johnson, but also the help of various other comrades, like I mentioned, Professor Victor Wallace, Julie Schneier of the Blue Ridge ABC. Uh, once again, Julie Schneier was a phenomenal and amazing supportive comrade when I was locked in those cages in Texas. Ju Julie just, I once the whole Fusion Center, Department of Homeland Security, trying to label me something I wasn't was in my business. Julie sat by my side and did everything she could to help get that false jacket and that false narrative away off of me. But anyway, uh, there were so many, I met so many wonderful comrades while I was down who just sacrificed much of their time and resources to help me. I mean, Annabelle Parker of the Netherlands was another amazing comrade. Dr. John Dolly Jr. of Central Texas ABC still remains today one of my closest comrades and friends. Calvin Burnap out in Seattle, Washington. Oh man, I, I'm almost scared to continue to say names because I might, I might, there might, there's gonna be people that I forget about. You know, I, I just had, I was blessed to meet so many, so many incredible human beings who thought that my life was more than just a cage and I was more than just a number. As I progressed as a politicized and awakened prisoner, I actually was able to begin to start forming relationships with other politicized prisoners. I, sometimes I'd be able to collaborate with them. Sometimes I'd be able to become a mentor with them. And one prisoner who I was able to collaborate with on a few things, and we actually became friends and we're friends right now, is another Indiana prisoner named Kwame Shakur, Kwame Bean Shakur. And uh, Kwame is a lot younger than I am. However, we have some similar tastes in music and we just really hit it off well. And Kwame is just a very, very intelligent and gifted young human being who I just believe deserves all of your support. Um, Kwame recently has released a YouTube video or YouTube song on YouTube called A Letter to Boosie. And I strongly recommend that you check it out because it is amazing. His, his friend, and I believe it's his wife, Jamila, is helping get uh, spread that. But I think Kwame has the ability to help bridge the gap between hip hop culture, hip hop music, and the movement for, to, to abolish prisons in the United States. I think that he can help bridge the gap and help edu educate people like Meek Mill, Jay-Z, T.I., Killer Mike, and other individuals that are in the industry who they really wanna do something positive to help the brothers and the sisters who are trapped behind the wall. They want, they want, some, they want to improve things for their community because if one thing that we have to understand that there is a disproportionate number of Black and Latinx people locked inside these cages in the United States. You hear people say that there is no such thing as systemic racism. Systemic racism does not exist in the United States, and that is a lie. That is a bold lie. 
And sometimes it's coming from people who are trying to twist the narrative. I'm here to tell you, all you have to you look at is the empirical data and look at who's in prison, who's being convicted and at what rate. And you will see clearly that there is a very serious problem here in the United States. So I want to ask everyone to support Kwame Shakur, not just in his music, because he he's going to be releasing. He's very talented. I mean, you listen to this rap song that he put out, Letter to Boosie. It is very, very packed with political messages that are, can resonate with the people in the street. I know it will. And I even the, even the people that are in the rap industry, they're going to bear witness that this Kwame Shakur, Kwame Bean Shakur, got something. I mean, he should be given a contract to record a CD today. He's very talented. But with his music, it's also a strong political message. And he's representing a group, an organization, actually, an organization, a political organization, the New African Liberation Collective. And actually, I am one of the individuals that sits on the National Committee. And there are many of us throughout the United States who are of the feeling that we must get better organized on a national and a regional level in order to push forward the prisoner human rights movement. Kwame Shakur is one of the key individuals who can help bring many of these politicized political prisoners and these, in, these brothers that, and sisters who have the intellectual capacity to grasp many of these various political philosophies, he has the ability to bring them all together. Various cultures, various races, creeds, religions, he, it reaches across a broad swath of the human race. And I just want us to try to, I just wanna bring a little bit more awareness on the good work the good work that Kwame Bean Shakur is doing. Very, very, very positive, young black man. And in today's world, when black men are treated and labeled as subhumans, I think it's important for us to speak a word to the good of some of the things that are going on with young black men in America. Thanks again to Malik Washington for speaking with us. We'll have more with him next week. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash kiteline radio show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.